again. Glad to have you here. My name is Mike Lilly. <coughs> I am the outreach coordinator and I am a part-time administrator here. It is a pleasure to have you. If you have children um, from kindergarten through sixth grade, uh, we do have children's service uh, through the door right uh, there and up the stairs. We also have a nursery uh, downstairs, downstairs left, about the second door down. So if you'd like to take kids at this time, feel free to do that. In 260 AD, the church in Alexandria, and in fact the whole city of Alexandria, faced the plague. I'm getting a sign again. This happens to me. What sign am I getting? I quit. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> I have a misshapen head. I, I just. My wife tells me all the time, Bob's side. Okay. Is that better? Hopefully. Not really. All right. I may have to use, like, my military voice. <laughs> okay. So, let me start this over again. In 260 A.D., the plague swept through the city of Alexandria. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word plague. Maybe you think of Monty Python. Maybe you think of, of some other show or, or history thing where you've seen just entire cities devastated. Well, that is what occurred in Alexandria. Two-thirds of the city's population died in the year between 260 and 261. Think of that for a second. Two-thirds of the population. As you can imagine, families, entire families wiped out. The idea of government, economic structures, agriculture almost non-existent by the time the plague was finished. If you caught the plague, if your child, your wife, whoa, works now, your wife, your spouse, whoever it was, caught the plague, if you even started to get the sniffles, they threw you out in the street and would not let you back in the house. And you would go through your entire sickness alone on the street until you died. Or your corpse would stay because no one wanted to come near it. That was the plague. People were leaving the city in mass, in panic, by the middle of the year. The bishop of the church in Alexandria's name was Dionysus. And Bishop Dionysus got all his pastors of all the churches together and said, look, this is not what we're called to. We're not called to flee. Christ calls us to love our neighbors. Christ calls us to serve. And so the church issued the call to its people not to leave. And instead to go out into the streets and bring in the sick into the churches. 
where they would be cared for until they either recovered or died. They sent their people into the streets and started collecting the bodies and taking them to bury them and give them a proper burial. In the process of serving, in the process of caring for those with the plague, the members of the church contracted the plague. And they got sick, and they died, and they were buried, along with the pagans. But the church ended that period of time with a very different reputation. Because in 260 AD, the church was under persecution, and the people that they were caring for were actually the very same people who were persecuting them. And when those who did live through it came back, they found that the church had been busy while they were gone. And their attitudes and hearts towards the church changed because the church served. They understood that to be the greatest, you had to be the servant of all. Friends, that's what we're called to. And that's what we'll talk about today. What does it mean to be the servant of all? Our scripture passage today is going to come out of Mark 10, verses 32 to 45. Mark 10, 32 to 45. Now while you're turning there, I'm going to take a little bit of time here to explain the context of where that's at. In the book of Mark that we've been going through, we found in chapter 1 that Jesus initiated his ministry. He said he came to do what? He came to proclaim that the kingdom of God had arrived. The kingdom of God was at hand. In chapters, in the rest of chapter 1 through chapter 7, he does a series of things that show his authority. He heals the sick. He heals those who are paralyzed. He heals those with diseases. He walks on water, defying the laws of physics. He makes bread, kind of ex nihilo out of nothing. All of this bread appears out of five loaves. This breaks the laws of physics. He declares himself Lord over the Sabbath. He forgives people, which is only God can do. So he has authority over sin. And he raises the dead. He shows himself even to have authority over death. That's just the first seven chapters. And that takes us to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Jesus does something. Two things are going to happen in chapter 8 and 9. Jesus is going to reveal himself in two ways. First, in chapter 8, he's going to reveal himself as the Messiah. He goes to his disciples and says, who do the people say that I am? They give him a list of names. And then he makes it very personal and he says, who do you say that I am? To which Peter responds, you are the Christ. Jesus doesn't deny it. There it is. He's the Messiah. The long-awaited, promised Messiah has come, and he's standing right in front of them. 
The next revelation comes in chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, out of the clouds, a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus is revealed as the Son of God. In these two chapters, he's revealed as the long-awaited Messiah and as the Son of God. Could there be anyone greater? Who's the greatest? Jesus. That's the short answer, Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. He is both Messiah, the Savior, and the Son of God. Sermon done. We can go home. Not really. You wish. Um, He is both of those. Now, what happens, though, after each of those revelations? In both of those, what does he say next? I'm going to die. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. We're going to deliver me over to the Gentiles. And I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be spit upon. And I'm going to be killed. That's what he says is going to happen. The greatest is going to have to die. The greatest will choose to go to his death. And then in chapter 8, that story gives us one more piece. There, he says, and for those of you who want to follow me, pick up your cross. Because that's what it's going to take. You're going to have to follow me even here. And it's no different than the call we receive today to follow him. It was the first call Christ gave to his disciples. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And there he was saying, follow me, pick up your cross into what this requires you to do. Because if you want to be the greatest, you're going to wind up being the servant of all. In the midst of that, in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, we find one last piece that's really interesting. He just showed himself as the Son of God. And they're on the road now to Capernaum. So the Mount Transfiguration, this is my son, listen to him. They head off to Capernaum. And what's going on on the road to Capernaum? In chapter 9, 33, it tells us that the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. Who was the greatest? In light of what they had just seen, in light of what they had just been through, Christ revealed as the Messiah and the Son of God, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. And so, when they get to the far end of the journey in Capernaum and get to the house, Christ just asks them quietly, what were you arguing about? What were you discussing on the road? And in light of standing now right in front of the one who truly is the greatest, not a word was spoken. Their hearts were undone. Their selfish ambition Revealed. 
But Christ doesn't leave him there. He doesn't dress him down. He doesn't get mad at him. He redirects it. And he makes it a teaching point. So that they would understand, if you want to be the greatest, you're going to be the servant of all. Let's pick up our reading now in Mark 10, 32. Should be up on the board. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days... He will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And the ten heard it, and they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called to them, to him, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Amen. The series of events that play out in this scripture are very similar to really what plays out in chapter 9. The setting is different. They were on the road to Capernaum. Now they're on the road to Jerusalem. It tells us that the folks who were following him were amazed. The disciples are amazed. Others that are following them are are afraid. Because they know it's not a a crowd that is for Jesus as they go to Jerusalem. They really are not real enthusiastic about going, in one sense, going with him there. They're amazed because he's already told them that he's going to die there. Why would he 
be going there. And so they are amazed and afraid. Disciples have heard that Jesus is what's going to happen to Jesus. They know that he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests. They know, well, I say they know. I mean, they've heard from Jesus. Jesus has told them that, that they're going to be, he's going to be delivered to the chief priest. He's going to be delivered then to the Gentiles. He's going to be beaten, to be mocked. He's going to be put to death. Jesus is very clear in telling them this. This is the third time now that they've heard it. There's no ambiguity in what is coming. And yet we see that right after these statements are made, I mean, there is no break in this. From where we started, where we end in verse 34, about Jesus saying what's going to happen to him, to what it picks up in 35, James and John are just right up. Boom. Hey, Jesus, we've got something we'd like you to do. Two of his most trusted disciples, the guys in the inner circle, were James and John and Peter. Two of the guys out of his most trusted inner circle are coming up to him with a question. And it's a question that stands in such contrast to what he just said. He just told him he's going to die. And yet when we see and we look into verse 34, or 35 and 37, the brothers, John, come up and, and ask their question. Can we be with you in glory? We want to sit at your right and your left hand. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. The right and the left hand were positions of authority and power. And this is a brazen request to fulfill ambition. And think about it. That's what they were asking for. They're asking to be rulers, to be an authority with Jesus, to have the wealth that comes with being an authority, the wealth that comes with being at the right and left of a king, to be known among men, to be famous. That's what they're asking for. Jesus, we want to sit at your right hand and your left. Now, as you can imagine, that wasn't necessarily, didn't go over well with the other disciples. They are indignant. They're not indignant like Jesus was indignant with the little children when they wouldn't let him come when they, let, they wouldn't let the little children come up to them that was a righteous indignation no this indignation is who do you two think you are that you get to sit at the right and left hand cuz there's not like additional chairs up there at the right and left hand that means just you two get to sit in the positions of power and authority with Jesus what about us that's what's really being said that's why they're indignant Because these two guys got in line in front of them to ask the question. 
That's why they're indignant. What about our power? What about our authority? What about us being famous and wealthy in the kingdom? It's raw ambition. That's what's going on. And Mark intentionally highlights this kind of stuff all the time in the gospel. He intentionally highlights that side of the disciples. But I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't get angry at them. He doesn't rebuke them like he rebuked Peter in chapter 8. He understands the ambition, but what he wants to do is redirect the ambition. He wants to redirect their ambition. Jesus wants them to know and to understand what it means to serve. And so he says to them what? If you want to be first in the kingdom, you're going to have to be a servant. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you're going to have to be a slave of all. To be great in the kingdom of God is a very different economy than what we have here on earth. For the disciples, this had to be, again, once again, kind of earth-shattering. It turned everything upside down, just like Jesus always does. He turns everything upside down. Their expectation, their want, their desire was to reign with power, authority, to be rich, to be wealthy. Remember, these guys were fishermen. But he says, no. If you want to be great in this economy, my Father's kingdom, the kingdom to come, you're going to have to learn to serve. And it's not just serving one man. It is a slave to all. And what did it mean to be a slave? What did it mean to be a servant? Well, to be a slave meant more than likely, that you, one, were either a criminal who had been caught and then put into slavery instead of some sort of prison or death. Two, you may have been someone who could not pay their debts, and so you were sold, along with your possessions, your family, whatever else, into slavery. Or three, you were a prisoner of war. In any of those cases, it wasn't like you volunteered, oh yes, I'd like to be a slave today. That wasn't how it, how it went. It was forced. And what else did it mean? It meant that you were doing someone else's bidding 24 hours a day. You had no authority of your own. You had no voice of your own. You had no property of your own. Because you were property. It was the direct opposite of what the disciples wanted. The direct opposite. And if it wasn't bad enough that they would be a slave to one man, Christ said, you will be a slave to all men. 
Everyone is higher than you. Everyone is of greater value than you. Even the other slaves. That's what he's saying. This is a complete turnaround. And yet this is what Christ called his disciples to. It was a call to die to their ambition. Their ambition. Their personal ambition. Their personal desires. And it was a redirection of that ambition to Christ. Christ didn't say, look, you'll never be great. He said, if you want to be greatest, this is what it looks like. God isn't saying that He doesn't want you to have ambition. Christ isn't saying, look, you shouldn't have that. That's God-given that we would have ambition. It's how it's focused. And it's to be focused through and in Jesus Christ. That ambition is to be grounded and founded in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. That's what he's saying. You, as the disciples and us today, need to rethink how we understand our ambitions, how we desire, how we understand what it means to be great. One of my challenges to you today is to rethink your desires, your ambitions, and to let Christ shape those. Let Christ redirect and define those ambitions so that your strength to do things and your purpose in doing them and your understanding of what it means to be successful in them are defined by, in, and through Christ. Each of us is called to serve. And the service will reveal the heart of a man. It reveals our motives. And so when God calls them to serve, this is not the first time. When Christ talks to them about this, this isn't the first time he's brought this up. This is the third time he's brought it up. And it reveals the heart of the man. What was important to them was their desire to be known. Each of us wants to have it our own way. That's just who we are. We want it to have it our own way. But the call is different. How do you respond? For instance, when the Holy Spirit prompts you to help someone. Maybe it's the neighbor across the street. Maybe they're regraveling their driveway and you're standing out there talking to them or you see them out there. You're not necessarily doing anything. It's Saturday morning. You could go over and help them gravel the driveway. Who knows where that might lead to. But, mm, no. How does that appear in your heart when the Holy Spirit kind of prompts you to do that? Is it yes and amen? 
Or is it, mm, not so much, don't want to do that, who knows where that will lead? What about when it's something simple? Like, your wife asks you to unload the dishwasher because she's got a busy morning. Or it's time to change the baby's diaper. How do you respond? What's your heart attitude? Is it to rise up? Is it to get haughty like the disciples? Or is it to take on what Christ calls us to be, to be the servant of all men? Now, you might be like me. I don't like stinky diapers. Never did. I'd really rather find someplace else to be. When I would catch a whiff of it, I'd kind of move to a different room and hope she found it first. I'm not going to lie to you. You know? I am not. My heart still rises up. I am not great at this whole servant thing. But I get better all the time. When I first became a believer, I'm going to tell you a story, and I did ask my wife ahead of time whether I was allowed to tell you this story or not. So, when I first became a believer, and she said yes. Uh, When I first became a believer, I was much more married to the army than I was to my wife. That was 1996. My attitude towards my wife, if she didn't like what was going on, was pretty much, if you don't like it, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. Because this is who I am and it's what I do. I was arrogant. I'm still arrogant, I know. But I was really arrogant... I was haughty, I was selfish, I was self-serving. That was who I was. But then I became a believer. And God started to change that a little bit in my spirit and in my heart. He was calling me to be a different person. So, I started to serve in the church. That's a good thing, right? So, if there was something to be, needed to be done in the church, I'd volunteer to do it. If we were doing an outreach, I'd be the first person there and the last to leave. I served every place the church would let me. Because that's what I was supposed to do, right? Well, about a year into that, Enzo was a little frustrated. And he came out one day in a very heated discussion in which she finally got to the point of saying, look, I didn't expect, I didn't need, I don't need for you to take one mistress and leave her behind, the army, and pick up a new mistress, the church, and still have me be second in your life. Ouch. I was pretty ticked. I was ticked because I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to do with that. I thought I was doing the right thing. I was angry. And so I complained to God because I was angry. I didn't hear anything. So then I was frustrated and I prayed to God. And I didn't hear anything. And then I was desperate. And I cried out to God. And God answered. And God said, in my prayers, He said, if you love me, Love your wife. You want to serve me? Learn to serve your wife. 
I said, hmm, I don't even know what that looks like. You're going to have to help me. And so, the next morning, I got up. The dishwasher was full. And I thought, hmm, she hates doing the dishwasher. I hate doing the dishwasher. Serve your wife. All right, fine, I'll serve my wife. And so I unloaded the dishwasher. She didn't say thank you. She didn't say anything. The servant stuff just was not much fun already. But God said, keep it up. Serve your wife. And so I did, and I would find different ways. I'd look around at different times. If there was laundry, I'd do laundry. If there's, the kitchen was, you know, had stuff on the floor, I'd sweep it up. I'd, I just looked for things to do that might serve her. Because Jesus said, if you want to serve me, serve your wife. Okay, I got it. And he patiently reminded me. And there were times I was just tired of serving my wife. I'm not going to lie to you. But he said, keep it up. Keep going. And so I did. In 2011, before we came up here, we had moved in with my mama. I don't recommend that. We had moved in with my mama, and she is a fantastic lady. I really know I love her. She's very gracious to let, her, let us live with her. And one night, I was bringing Enza a cup of coffee. And she looked at my wife and with some disdain said, Young lady, you are spoiled. And my wife replied, No, Mom, I'm well loved. <sighs> For me, that was probably the best thing I ever could have heard. Because that was God's faithfulness. To me, that was a sign of marriage restored. To me, that was a sign that by serving God's love, the love of Christ for her, had been seen, had been known, had been felt, had been accepted. Our serving, when we serve for Christ, with Christ, at our heart and in our center, expresses the love of Christ for others. That's what our serving is meant to do. It changes the hearts, not only of the one who serves, because it taught me to love her deeply, But it changed her heart. It brought healing. It brought restoration. It brought love. Now I have a goal in this. And that is, before I die, or after I die, 
My wife will be able to say, I knew Jesus Christ. Because I saw it lived out every day before me. In my husband. That's my hope. That's my goal. I want her to see Christ in me. I want her to know the love of Christ. Because what fills me is not just my love for her, which, as you could see from earlier, was quite arrogant, but it's the love of Christ for her through me. Friends, that's the goal of our serving, to express the love of Christ for others. And I hope in going over that, that you'll see that that God calls us to serve with a purpose. Christ came and he said, look guys, I didn't come to, to be served. I came to serve. Join me in that. Join me in serving. Because that's why I came. Friends, we can't do that on our own. There's no way any one of us will live like that in our own flesh. And because of that, Jesus had to do something. Something had to happen. And in verse 45, he says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what does that mean, to be a ransom for many? Jesus doesn't stop at telling his disciples that they are, or that they need to imitate him, to be like him. He gives them the means to do it. Christ was going to Jerusalem for a very specific purpose. To fulfill the Father's will. It is why He came. Now when you think of a ransom, it may be that you think of someone who was kidnapped. So somebody gets kidnapped and the kidnapper says, oh, I want a million dollars ransom for you to get this person back. Pardon me. You may think of our recent case in the news with Sergeant Badal, where there was an exchange made, a ransom to get Sergeant Badal back to give him five of these guys out of Gitmo. Now, whether you think that's good or bad, I'm not here to discuss that. But that exchange gets made. Christ came to make an exchange. He may came to make an exchange because we could not. We could not. We have a problem. It's called sin. And if you lived 
a perfect life, if you had, you could maybe offer up your life. And you could pay for one sin. I don't know about you, but I guarantee with me, by probably 6 o'clock this morning, I had enough thoughts go through my head that I'd be guilty of more than one sin. Maybe on your drive up here today, you had some thoughts going through your mind because of the traffic that were less than gracious. Maybe they were downright sinful. We sin all the time. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That sin has to be paid for. It has to be paid for with a life. Jesus came to pay a price that we could not. He was the ransom. Not for one, not for one sin, not for one person, but for many. For the sins of many. For the sins of all those who would believe in Him. Jesus went to Jerusalem to be delivered over to the chief priest. To be delivered over to the Gentiles. To be beaten. To be mocked to be spit on, to be scourged, to be crucified. That was the plan from the beginning. And I want to, today, <coughs> offer to you that if you have not in the past placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that there is a way that you can Gain for yourself that ransom. What does it mean to place your faith in Jesus Christ? It means that you say, that ambition that you've had, that I want to be in charge of my life, I want to do things my way, is to say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I don't want to live that way anymore. Maybe your ambition has left you sort of wrecked, shipwrecked, broken. You can come to Christ and say, I don't want to live like that anymore. I want to follow you. Lord, please forgive me. Jesus, please forgive me for doing things my way and for all the sin that's gone with that, for all the wrongdoing that I've done to break your laws and to rebel against you. Forgive me. And I want to follow you. I want to make you the one in charge of my life and I want to make you the one who leads me. And I'm going to follow you. You can make a statement like that to Jesus. And He promises to dwell with you, to come into your heart. You can do that today. You can do it right now. There's no special thing you've got to go to. There's no class on it. You can just pray that right now. And Christ will come into your heart. And things will change. 
If you pray that today, if you pray that here this morning, I encourage you to tell somebody that you came with, tell somebody you're sitting there, talk to me, talk to Pastor Jeff. Because it'll be one of the, it will be, not one of, it will be the most important decision you ever make. It will change how you live, how you think. It will change the way you see serving. We could have the band come up, please. There's another set of folks I'd like to talk to today. And that's those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. For you, I don't know where you're at in understanding um, serving God. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that for you to serve well, you've got to join the team for VBS or join children's ministry. Or do anything else necessarily here in the church. It may be that God gives you something to do that. But I'm not saying that's what it'll be. This week, I've been praying for you. And I've been praying that God would give you something very specific and tangible in a way that He would like you to serve. It may be a place, it may be a person, it may be an organization. I don't know. I don't know what God might have for you. But we're going to do something a little odd right here, and we're just going to take a momentary break. And I'd like you to close your eyes, and I'd like you to ask Jesus, what would you have me do? Where would you have me serve? Who would you have me serve? Now, I don't know what that's going to look like. So we're going to do that. On your bulletin insert, there's a little space for you to write it down, or there's paper in front of you, there's pens in the seats in front of you. Take something out. We're just going to take a minute here. We're going to close our eyes. We're going to be silent. Ask God, where would He want you to serve? Go ahead and do that now. Okay. If you got something, go ahead and write that down. This week, I want to encourage you to take a minute and tell somebody what you got, what the word was, what the thing was, the place, the person. You may look looking at that and going, uh, "What am I supposed to do with that?" That's your assignment this week. Investigate. Ask God, how do I serve with this person, with this thing, in this capacity? I don't understand. 
Search out God's heart on it. In your small group this week, as your care group meets, talk about these things. What is it that God's asking you to do? How is he calling you to serve? Let him know what he's asked you to do. And for those of you who have a testimony, I would encourage you next week or the following week as you step into doing whatever that service may be, that new thing may be, to come up and give a testimony of what God's doing so that the body can be encouraged as they see God move among us. God gave us his son as a ransom. He did that so that we would be able to be in Christ. And in Christ, we're asked to serve. And in fact, in Christ, we're asked to have our whole ambition, our whole thought process turned upside down, just like the disciples had theirs turned upside down. So that it's no longer about me and my wealth and my name and my fame, but it's all about God's. And in his economy, if you want to be great, you have to be the servant of all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Thank you for your clear call to us to serve to serve with you as our foundation, with you as the, as the one who fills us, your love filling us and overflowing us. Lord, we don't do this alone. We don't serve alone. We serve with you in us and beside us, before us, behind us. We serve not to earn your love, but because your love fills us and overflows from us. Father, thank you that you've given us this means to show your love. And I pray this week, Lord God, that our spirits would be encouraged and built up as we consider your word, the price you paid, Jesus, on our behalf, that we would be spurred on as we look to the things you've called us into Lord, I pray that in this coming week, then Sunday, and in our care groups, Lord, that, that there would be testimonies given, Lord, by men and women and children in this church of how you've called them into something this week. Father, I pray that there is an excitement in their spirit and their soul as they investigate it, as they seek your face in it. Lord, meet them. Meet them wherever they are. Lord, whether there's no courage to, Father, whether they are excited about what you're asking them to do, meet them there. And Father, may we, in hearing their testimonies, be built up as the body, encouraged in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.